I personally am not seeing the evidence for having artificial rupture of membranes take place, certainly not routinely during birth. This is when doctors and even some midwives say, all right, time to break your water. And the implication is that it's going to help things along, which is always a red flag. I'm wondering if non-stress tests at the end of your pregnancy are necessary, especially if you've had normal pregnancy with no issue. There are certain deceleration patterns that do indicate that a baby might be getting into a dangerous situation. However, it still is true that electronic fetal monitoring routinely and continuously does not improve outcomes in babies and does increase the risk of C-section and NICU admission. All right. Well, Trisha, guess who I reached out to for this one? I bet I can guess. You can guess. Queen of VBACs. Queen of VBACs. Nancy Wayner. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth Podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. Hello. Welcome to the June, May. Welcome to the May Q&A. Before we get into this month's Q&A, Trisha and I have just been looking back on some of the birth story sessions we've been doing with uh, with women in which they work with us privately on Zoom in a 75-minute session to go over their births. And the stories we hear, I mean, Trisha, we've got, you and I have a ton of experience between us, but sometimes we're both so surprised, are we not, by the things we hear doctors say and, and such? Well, we know it's we know it's out there, but then when you really hear that it it's actually still happening, yeah, sometimes it's still a little shocking. It's concerning because any of us would be inclined to believe the the doctor that we're sitting there with, right? So let let me just share the example that um, that we very recently heard. There was a mom with her um, with her obstetrician at the end of pregnancy, considering because of course the conversation was prompted by the doctor considering whether to schedule a C section or have an induction. The choice of the the choice of the century, the less of the two evils, right? And but here, but listen to this. Listen to this really bad information. Um, the mom wisely asked, "What are the risks to the baby of a C-section?" And what did the doctor say? There are none. Uh, the words were absolutely none. And the World Health Organization has reported through all the studies they've done a four hundred percent to one thousand percent increase in adverse outcomes for babies who are born by C-section. And of course, that's not to say every C-section is more dangerous than if that baby had been born vaginally. It's statistically all things equal. It is significantly more dangerous. Absolutely none was the response. Then the mother asked, and what are the risks to induction? Oh, so the doctor said, absolutely none. Only only you, uh, we could accidentally nick your organs, but there's absolutely none to the baby. Okay. And then she said, and what are the risks to induction? And then the doctor flipped it. There are none to you, only to the baby. I mean, Trisha. Trisha. I'm here. No, I'm looking at you. But say something. That's unbelievable. Yeah. How long is the list of risks to every single induction drug? A couple dozen items long? 
Yeah, but they don't. None to you, attention. only to the baby. Well, I think we could probably ask pretty much any woman who is being offered an induction, especially an elective induction at 39 weeks, what her doctor or midwife says are the risks to it. And they're going to say it better to have the baby on the outside than the inside. But here's my concern. These women are following the, the smart protocol to get information. And all it takes is a doctor to give bad information. And the woman feels she did what she can do. She asked, but who's there to stop her from receiving bad information from an unethical or uninformed doctor? Very concerning. Yeah. I think we just closed that conversation with, you know, that in the case of the unnecessary, and we're talking about the case of the unnecessary cesarean, the risks are significant to mom and baby. And the same in the case of the unnecessary induction, which is so, so many of them because so many are offered for non-medically indicated reasons. Now, we're not talking about the the needed C-section or the needed induction where there are more significant risks. There are an abundance of risks in both situations to mom and baby. So for a doctor to just dismiss red flag, rhetoric, borderline malpractice. Just how would one know is the, is the problem. How would one know she's receiving that bad information? That's where we're still stuck. By listening to us. <laughs> yeah. No, just keep getting informed. That's right. Try to, try to recognize when you're not working with someone who's, who's got the information straight. Um, and, you know, doing your own research online, like look up, look up the risks. They're very easy to obtain and they're very, they're very serious. No matter how rare, they're very serious. All right. Shall we start with our first question now, Trisha? Let's do it. All right. Hi, Cynthia and Trisha. I first wanted to thank you guys for your amazing podcast. I listened to it for months leading up to my birth, first birth in December and had an incredible birth that I felt had a ton of informed consent and was just wonderful. And I owe a lot of that to you guys. Um, My question is, my baby was born at a little over 37 weeks. He was um, full term and all that. But when he was born, I was squatting and caught him. And the midwife had said, short cord. And so he was placed on my stomach rather than on my chest until um, seven or 10 minutes later when they were able to cut the cord. Um, They did note that the cord was, as I said, short and the placenta was smaller than normal. Um, he was healthy and perfectly fine and had, was, you know, born without any issues, um, and is a healthy, chunky baby now. But I do wonder if that's something that you ever have experienced and what it, um, could possibly mean. The midwives were not concerned at all. And like I said, he's healthy and wonderful now. But I was just curious if that's something that you've seen before. Thank you guys so much. So short cords are possible. Umbilical cords can be between one and three plus feet long, which is an enormous variance. Uh, Again, talking about what's normal, right? I mean, when in the future are we going to be measuring the length of cords in utero and saying your cord is too short or too long, right? That's, is that the next That's probably coming. (laughs) Right. I mean, you know, anything they can think of because, but that's normal. So yes, when you have a short cord, the baby comes out and goes quite low down on your stomach. And that's just, you know, you just wait until the placenta is out and that that's fine and normal. She did mention having a smaller than uh, usual placenta. I guess they told her that. And usually it's my understanding placenta sizes are kind of commensurate with the baby's weights. And she didn't mention her baby's weight. All we know from her question is that her baby was normal and fine. But 
her baby might've been on the smaller side and the placenta mm-hmm. accordingly might've been on the smaller side. That doesn't indicate at all that there was anything wrong with the placenta. We can see that there wasn't because she had a normal birth and a healthy baby. Did you ever hear anything to the contrary in your training at Yale, Tricia? Like that isn't the cord length, a random arbitrary component of a pregnancy and birth? Well, we do know that cord length correlates with activity level of the baby in utero. So really active babies tend to have longer cords. Really? I mean, that's what I was growing. Taught. Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> it's like I wonder if it's a cause activity of activity level lengthens the cord or, or maybe they're more active because the cord is naturally longer. That's what I'm wondering. There's yeah. a correlation. Like the cause effect. What, right. What is the, what is the nature of the correlation? I think is the question. Very interesting. Okay. But yeah. Do you agree with everything I said? I do. About, yeah. Okay. Short cords happen. Short right. cords. They just, they happen. Um, and short okay. cords are a variation of normal. Okay. Hi, ladies. I wanted to submit a kind of a relationship question for um, spouses and family members, etc. I recently had a baby back in October and, you know, I'm a first time mom. And I feel like people around me don't really trust my mom instinct um, that maybe they know better because they've had more kids or whatever. And I'm struggling to set a boundary of what I know best for my daughter, because I do, I do know her best. And, you know, being kind, because I understand that their point is to help, but I'm finding it really difficult to kind of establish my role with other people. Um, You know, obviously my husband is, he's a great dad, amazing husband, but I'm trying to help him understand that like nobody can read this baby better than I can, not even him. And I, I don't want it to offend him or hurt his feelings, but as a mom and a woman, I, I'm i very, very good at reading people, even my dog, um, but my baby girl, there's been several times where he goes, you know, oh, she's fine, or no, she just needs the two ounces. I said, no, no, she, she needs four, and of course, you know, 30 minutes later, she's screaming because she's not full, so I'm trying to figure out a way to balance being able to kind of take the reins. I am a stay-at-home mom, so this is my full-time job, if you will. Um, Take the reins without offending or hurting anyone's feelings. Um, You know, it's difficult when my mother-in-law is in town or my husband is trying to do something that I already know is not going to work, and I have to just sit back and, like, watch my daughter cry until he realizes that I was right. And, you know, it's not not about being right for me, but I, I do know what's best for my daughter. So I guess my question is, how do I navigate this I'm the mom, I'm the boss kind of role while also letting others like help and contribute. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to kind of get that respect as like, okay, Steph knows that, you know? So that's all. Well, first of all, my heart goes out to her because, and my heart goes out to her husband, honestly, because this is a very common situation. I think it's totally... I actually think it's totally universal. What in any heteronormative relationship where that mom who gave birth is home with the baby, if not full time for at least several weeks or months. And what happens is she gets so much experience so quickly with her baby. She just knows. She understands how to read the baby, how to understand what the baby needs, what the baby will respond to, why the baby is acting a certain way. And then in comes her partner for that one or two hours per day. If they're lucky, if they, if they have that time to dedicate after, let's say after work each day, 
And what, what's going on for the partner is they just want to bond and they just want to feel valuable and they just want to feel like they have a role in the baby's life and let it be said, not feel marginalized. So sometimes what happens is they, they take a stab at it or they say, no, no, I think this is what they need. Or I think this is, I think they're good now, or I think this will make them happy. And that mom is standing by just thinking like, okay, do I hold my tongue and go through the like the complete frustration of watching the baby start crying in a couple of minutes because this isn't what they need? Or do I speak up and hopefully prevent a crying outburst from the baby and risk offending or hurting my partner? And it's just, it's, there's really almost no advice we can give because this is such an, an, an expected situation in a relationship where one parent is getting li- quite literally 24 hours a day of experience where the other parent is racking up, if you're lucky, one or two hours a day of experience. And usually that experience is shared with the baby. They're not even the sole parent for that one or two hours. So it's just so hard. I think there's always the element too of like picking your battles a little bit. Like there's going to be certain things that you are just going to be the boss of, like just no questions asked like this. I am the mother and I'm making this choice. And then there are other things that you might bend a little on, you know, like what the baby wears or how to change the diaper, how often to change the diaper. Some some of those littler things that you can just sort of pass off to, to other people and take their input. Uh, But you don't have to, you can just do it all your way. I do think it's a different situation with the in-laws. I think when they're giving opinions that you really don't need, you just have to find a polite way of drawing a boundary. I think sometimes as new moms, we can want to be really firm in that, like, I'm the mother now kind of tone. I don't think that's necessary. And it might be something you will wish you were softer about years later. Um, But I do think drawing a boundary is very important. And just politely extricating yourself from the conversation and remembering not to explain yourself when it comes to your decisions. You don't have to argue about your baby. You don't have to assert why you're making your decisions for your baby, right? So you just have to politely remove yourself. And by default, you get to make all the decisions anyway. When you made that comment about struggling to get the respect as the mother, I I do think that it's not something you need to take personally when it comes to your partner. They're really trying to find their place in this incredibly intimate bond between you and the baby, and they need to find their place in that. And I think that um, wanting respect from everyone else is legitimate. The reality is that a mother is going to know her child best, always. Just, just always. Hi, I'm wondering if non-stress tests at the end of your pregnancy um, are necessary or not, especially if you've had normal pregnancy with no issues. Thank you. Well, let's just start by explaining what an NST is. Yeah. Um, so a non-stress test or an NST is a, um, fetal evaluation of the baby's heart rate. Um, it can be part of a biophysical profile or it can just be the fetal heart rate monitoring on its own. So they're looking at the baby's heart rate, especially in response to baby's movement. And then it's um, evaluated as either reactive or non-reactive. So this is pretty routinely done in late pregnancy. If you're in a a hospital-based midwifery practice or an obstetrical practice, 
But the thing is that there is no real solid evidence that NST screening actually lowers long-term adverse outcomes for babies. So yes, might it actually pick up a baby who is in a uh, potentially dangerous situation? Yes. But does it have a very high false positive rate? Also, yes. So these tests can create a lot of stress for mothers unnecessarily. Um, I always find it ironic. They're called the non-stress tests. They're the, they're, they're, <laughs> right. the, they're the stress tests. <laughs> it's a better name. They are. Um, so there are certain conditions in pregnancy where an NST is going to be more like legitimate. Any any high risk pregnancy, um, or if a mom is actually coming in noticing that she has decreased fetal movement, then a non-stress test is going to be really important, and it's going to have a higher predictive value. But just again, as we always talk about on this podcast, the use of routine intervention in healthy, normal physiologic pregnancy can often lead to unnecessary stress and false positives and interventions that probably are not really necessary. Hey there, all you amazing, strong, and beautiful women especially you new moms and moms-to-be. I'm Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Vitality. And I'm Taylor's sister, Chloe, co-founder and chief design officer. We started Vitality to encourage and empower everyone to live a vibrant life. We're all about supporting women, especially on the journey to motherhood. When I was pregnant, I really struggled to find comfy leggings that I could wear all day, every day. So we set out to make the best maternity pants out there. We took those pain points and designed pieces that were supportive and comfortable, including details like a high-rise fit, underbelly seam, raw cut hems, and to top it off, we have an embedded silicone panel that acts like a built-in suspension system for your low back, which is the first of its kind. So we designed this line in our Marshmallow Soft Cloud 2 fabric in not only a maternity pant, but a volley and biker short as well. Let me tell you, all of these pieces are a game changer. Just go to shopvitality.com and cherry on top, you guys can use code down to birth at checkout to get 10% off your order. 10% off athleisure designed for pregnancy during pregnancy. Down to birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sits bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot com, and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product, we bring you Needed a radically better prenatal vitamin. 
Need its nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels and are available in capsules and an easy to take vanilla powder. Perfect for those moms with pill fatigue or nausea. Needed is a woman-founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Needed offers premium supplements for every stage from egg quality support for women trying to conceive to lactation support for breastfeeding. And you know, Cynthia and I, we love their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. So if you are looking for a radically different prenatal, Head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter down to birth for 20% off your first order. Hi, ladies. Uh, this is Amy calling in from Texas, and I had a question about um, rupturing membranes. So my first question was, is there ever a medical indication for artificial rupture of membranes? And then also, if you could talk about any potential benefits, risks, and alternatives so women can make informed decisions in their labor. Thank you. Bye. I personally am not seeing the evidence for having artificial rupture of membranes take place, certainly not routinely during birth. This is when doctors and even some midwives say, all right, time to break your water. And the implication is that it's going to help things along, which is always a red flag because we're not in a hurry and the baby in a normal birth does not need any help. Um, ACOG has even gotten much more vocal about this in recent years. I believe as of 2017, they started getting louder about this. And their most recent statement, I believe, says that more than 15 studies have now shown it does not speed up labor. But up until they said that for years before that, a decade before they said that, I said, even if it does speed up labor, which we knew wasn't in the research, even if it does, how does that make your birth safer? Why are we always in a hurry? Years ago, I had a home birthing couple because um, usually in every class I teach that one to two couples are having a home birth. And this couple called me from the hospital and they said they were urgently transferred. And I said, what, what caused it? And they said the midwife broke her water to speed up labor. And I thought a home birth midwife did this to you. Now, what also can happen is vaginal exams we sometimes see that midwives are giving or doctors are giving women vaginal exams and they're, without the woman's knowledge, rupturing membranes. And then sometimes the woman feels very sick. She sometimes vomits. Sometimes her contractions or her surges get very, very intense. The whole labor changes course. Trisha, I would love you to answer this part of the question. What are the benefits? I always feel like if it's like the step before a C-section, maybe give it that one last effort. I would say there are really very few benefits. There might be a very specific scenario where it could be beneficial, and that might be a, a bulging bag of water that's putting pressure on the cervix, but not enough to maybe help the cervix get that last bit of dilation, or maybe the baby's not coming down. So sometimes if there's that space between the baby's head and the cervix, and there's just that water in between, it's not really applying quite enough pressure on the cervix to get that last bit of dilation. And I, I have seen this happen uh, sometimes in multiples. And if you break the bag of water, sometimes that baby just comes down and the cervix opens and birth happens like in, in a matter of minutes. That is the only scenario. But even then, I would only consider doing that if the mother, one, really wanted it. She just wanted something. Or two, if the baby was in distress and you really needed to get that baby born more quickly. 
Otherwise, there is really zero benefit and there's more risk. You, the, the main risk in um, breaking a bag of water prematurely is cord prolapse. You can create space for that cord to come out with the gush of water, come down before the baby's head, and now you're in a really dangerous situation. Um, and then early rupture of membranes, like as part of an induction protocol, which is often how it's used, like, oh, we're going to start the Pitocin, we're going to, you know, break your bag of water. So bad. That is not effective. That's, no, and it's so dangerous. It, it potentially makes labor more uncomfortable. It can also impede baby's ability to um, get their head in the proper position. You know, you break that bag of water, you take away that cushion. There's not as much ability for the baby to move. Yes, it does potentially increase contractions, but that's not necessarily what we need at that moment in time. So very few benefits and definite risks and a practice that really should be reserved for very specific situations. Okay, let's do the next one. Hi, my name is Christina. I'm from San Diego and just want to say thank you for your podcast. I just started listening to my second pregnancy and um, absolutely obsessed. Um, but I had a C-section with my first and so this time around I'm going to have a VBAC and I'm currently interviewing some midwives and birthing centers. And one of the centers, uh, one of the midwives mentioned that with a VBAC, that labor sensations are going to be different because of the scar and that I'm going to be feeling, you know, different things than a traditional labor um, and I was trying to research and find any information on that, and I could not find anything that the sensations um, would be different or that I have to, you know, look out for different things um, with laboring with a back versus just the traditional labor. So I'm curious if you guys had ever heard of that or had um, any clients that experienced that. Uh, thank you so much for all you do. Bye. All right. Well, Trisha, guess who I reached out to for this one? I bet I can guess. You can guess. Queen of VBACs. Queen of VBACs. Nancy Wainer. Yep. Because um, we, you know, what if this is, you know, I always have to think like, I thought this was nonsense, but who am I to say that? Let me go to her. She's attended almost 3000 births and she's attracted uh, VBAC women over the past, what is it? Four decades. And um, there's no one who knows more about VBAC. So she gave me permission to read her response. And um, let me just warn you all, she's a lot more outspoken than either of us. So this is her response. This is basically garbage. And if her midwife sounds like more of a medwife is telling her this, I wonder what other garbage she's telling her. I would like to know more how the midwife has described what the contraction feels like, whether she herself has had babies, what's her experience with giving birth, with what VBAC is, and how she, quote, knows that the contractions will feel differently. I thought that was a really good point, right? Like, is this woman talking from experience and is she just, um, right? I mean, trying to guess that would be the only justification for saying something like that is that she has actually been through this and that is simply her experience. And that could be completely unrelated to having had having it be a VBAC birth. This is not something that is true. This is not something that's known. This is not something that people say. This is not something people report. This is not something that's been studied. This is her opinion. This midwife. That's all. Yep. And I, I just thought it was such a good point. It didn't even occur to me. That's so true. How do we just like, I, I suspected it was wrong, but I never thought the way Nancy did, like, how, how, where did she even come up with this? Was it a personal experience or did she just hear this from someone else? And now she's spreading the rhetoric. Let me continue what Nancy wrote. Mickey Mongan, that's the founder of hypnobirthing. Uh, Mickey Mongan used to say, prepare them, don't scare them. And I want to know what else this midwife is doing to quote, prepare this woman. How a woman perceives or experiences labor is based on so many things. 
Certainly a woman who has had a VBAC will have memories of her previous experience, quote, embedded into her bones, so to speak. And as we all know, tension produces more discomfort and pain. I want to know if this midwife is giving her some help with healing from the last experience on an emotional level, talking to her about diet and nutrition, because that makes a difference also, and is giving her some good techniques for helping the woman stay relaxed and calm this time around. Pain is generally a signal that something is wrong, but the, but the sensations of labor is a sign that something is right. Many of the women whose VBACs I've attended, and there have been so many of them, have said that this labor was easier than any of the ones for which they were sectioned. This time, the baby's in position, or this time, they're getting more support, or this time, they're in their own environment, which is supportive and comforting. This time, they didn't eat dairy. Nancy is very opposed to eating dairy in a pregnancy. Um, this time, they didn't eat dairy, and this time, they took long walks, and this time, they connected in a different way with the baby, and this time, they are more determined than ever to birth calmly and vaginally. This time, they're not going to let discouraging or uneducated or inexperienced or uncaring or lying professionals dictate to them how their labors will feel. Mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But now, of course, we're all going to want to know why she says we can't eat dairy in pregnancy. Oh, I know all about that. She's said that for years. I heard her saying that in 2007 on stage, and I was pretty impressed because I know dairy is acidic, and I know that it can be very cleansing and healthy to give it up for a while, if not uh, very long term. But she says, and she has studied uh, all the women with their food journals and their births. She has really studied this. And a lot of this has gone into her books. But to Nancy, this is basically the explanation about the dairy. Um, Whereas birds have essentially hollow bones. They're very porous, so they can fly. Cows have incredibly dense bones. So the minute a cow is born or within an hour of a cow being born, their bones are so dense, they stand up and they strengthen out those little legs and they walk away from their mother's and humans have semi-porous bones. So we can neither fly nor can we stand up within an hour of birth. We take approximately a year to stand up and walk away from our our mothers. Nancy is convinced from her own experience that when a woman consumes an inordinate amount of dairy, I'm not just saying some dairy, some women are told to have more dairy in pregnancy. So they have so much more than they even want to have. And Nancy has seen that when women have an inordinate amount of dairy in pregnancy, she is convinced by her by what she has witnessed. Those babies are just having a little bit harder time coming out because of those bones. Hmm. Well, bones are supposed to be malleable in birth. Right. Of course. Well, they need to be able to move. That's right. And Nancy says that when she when she has seen that difficulty and she she got herself to the point where she could anticipate it. If a woman had come to her, let's say in her eighth month and said, I'm doing a good job. I'm having extra dairy. Nancy would say, okay, stop, you know, cut back on the dairy. Now get your calcium from another source. Very interesting. Now, if women don't want to hear that, forget you heard it. Hear everyone, listen to yourself. But for the women who are curious and receptive, that's her explanation. Very interesting. I would just add to that dairy isn't the best source of calcium. So if it is, you are consuming excess dairy for calcium purposes, that's not actually going to help that much. Um, and it that and the reason it doesn't help, and you can read the China study or uh, the pH miracle by Dr. Robert Young, they're two outstanding books, is that because it's acidic and throws off our blood pH and we have to restore it to 7.365, we have to actually deplete minerals, including calcium, out of our body in order to digest it and restore our pH. So that is exactly right. And when you have calcium from a non-acidic source like nuts, it doesn't throw off the pH and you don't have to use calcium to um, digest it. 
eat more spinach and kale. Absolutely. Salads all the way. Wake up and eat a salad. (laughs) (laughs) Ew. I know. Oh, in my second pregnancy, I was craving chopped salads in the morning. It was so funny. I could not touch greens in my first pregnancy. I couldn't touch them. Oh, okay. Well, eat more broccoli. All right. Let's go on. Then thank you to Nancy. And her website is birthdaymidwifery.com. She She's in uh, Braintree, Massachusetts. All right. Next. next. Hi there. Thank you both for all the work that you do. Um, I just love your podcast and all of the resources you provide. And I just had a question. I'm going into my third birth. Uh, my first was three years ago. Gave birth to the baby girl where I got an epidural 18 hours into labor. Um, for my second, I went natural and it was all good until the transition and pushing phase, which felt a little bit overwhelming and I didn't feel entirely prepared just for that, the mindset required for that portion of birth. Um, so this time I'm thinking of taking a hypnobirthing class and just sort of trying to prepare more mentally for the transition and pushing phases. And I'm particularly interested in the fetal ejection reflex. And so I was wondering if you could tell me any more about how to access that reflex. I know that it happens more at home birth and hospitals. I'll be birthing in a birth center. Um, However, the birth center does not allow water birth, only water labor. And so I feel like with my last birth, when I saw they saw me start pushing in the tub, I had to get out or they told me to get out. I I could have refused. Um, But legally, I was supposed to get out. And I feel like that sort of ruins the mindset, that transition out of the tub and into, um, you know, the bed. So anyway, I'm curious if you have any advice on leaning into that reflex and allowing my body to do more of that work for me and to hopefully avoid the overwhelming feelings I had during the pushing phase. Well, anything you know, I would love to learn from you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Well, my first comment here would be that um, the place that you give birth, while important, it's really about how you feel during your birth. So the fetal ejection reflex can happen just as often in the hospital or in a birth center or at home, so long as you are in a birth mental space that allows for the physiology of birth to take over and be the dominant force. Um, and you feel you that you're feeling safe and relaxed enough that the cascade of hormones that elicits the fetal ejection reflex can happen, right? So she said she was worried about being at a birth center. Could the fetal ejection reflex happen still? And of course it can happen anywhere. It's involuntary. Um, you can't prevent it or, or, or instigate it, right? Well, not consciously. Not consciously. Well, I meant consciously. Yeah. Like, I'm going to now birth you my You can't baby. say now I'm going to have the section. Now I'm going to have the. <laughs> Get ready to chat. Let's go. Um, right. No, but but your birth space and how you feel in your birth and whether you're feeling safe and relaxed and supported and whether you have had um, an interruption in the physiology of birth, if you have had medication, then sometimes that fetal ejection reflex can be halted because it requires that whole necessary cascade of hormones to kind of go through their, their little dance that they do. Um, not that it can't happen with women who have medication. It can, but it's less frequent. So I think what she said about, you know, being told to get out of the water probably was the thing that disrupted it for her. Right. For sure. So yes, it can happen anywhere. 
Um, it is that last surge of adrenaline that happens right before the baby is born. It's nature's way of protecting that very critical moment before the baby is born. It is sort of the most potentially risky moment in birth is right as the baby is coming out of the vagina. And so that last surge of adrenaline is what gets the baby out quickly and gets your uterus to contract down. And that is basically what the fetal ejection reflex is. Finding the perfect pregnancy and breastfeeding bra is no easy task. Your search is now over. Meet Davin and Adley, a mother-owned pumping, nursing, and maternity bra company with a unique, comfortable, and stylish cropped cami. This item is perfect to wear all day long from day one of your pregnancy right through the end of your breastfeeding journey and probably beyond. The Amelia Cami makes pumping and breastfeeding easy while looking and feeling good on your body. It works seamlessly for both wearable pumps and flange pumps, and you can breastfeed in it. It also has a beautiful stretch lace back. You can sleep in it, dress up in it, go out in it, whatever you want to do in it. And trust us, the quality in this item and all of their items are top notch. They're soft, durable, and attractive. These bras will truly go the distance. Davin and Adley carry a gorgeous selection of maternity and nursing wear, and they have an innovative one-piece breast pad that we've never seen anywhere else. So no more losing those solo breast pads, ladies. Go ahead and check out the full collection of maternity and nursing items at davinandadley.com and use your promo code down to birth to save 15%. All right, breastfeeding moms. Do you want to know one of our all-time favorite items for your nursing journey? If you know us, you probably could guess it. Yep, it's the Silverette Nursing Cup. These little nipple heroes not only protect, but also heal because they're made of real silver. It is naturally antimicrobial, antifungal, and anti-inflammatory. These little cups will be your best friend in the early sensitive weeks of breastfeeding your baby. And our favorite part is they last literally forever. You can pass them on just like you would a favorite piece of jewelry. Head on over to silverettusa.com and use promo code down to birth to save 15%. Okay. Hi, ladies. My name is Breland, and I am eight months pregnant with my second. I'm planning a home birth with a certified professional midwife, and she is requesting that I have coffee at the birth. At first, I thought this was just in case labor was going on through the night and she needed to pick me up. But with further discussion, I realized that she uses this to help prevent tearing. Do you know anything about the effects of coffee on the perineum during labor? My gut is telling me to decline this, but would love to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Where where do people get this from? Where- I have never heard of this. Well, neither has Barbara Harper, neither has Nancy Weiner. Oh, you could have you asked around a little bit. I asked around because I always try to learn. You know, I always think, what if this is a one in a million situation that I haven't right. learned about yet? Because it's one in a million. And they both said, absolutely not. And they've never even heard of it. So it's like, I'm, what are we talking about? Like brewed coffee or coffee grounds, a coffee compress on the perineum? That must be what it is. It's just, I, the only thing that I can think of is that there's something in the caffeine that maybe no now don't, oh, Trisha, <laughs> let's not finish that creative thought. <laughs> I appreciate your creativity. This I'm trying. 
there's not a thing. And if you just say it once, you know, that one woman is going to tell the next one in her yoga class and we're going to be responsible (laughs) for huge, huge. I think the midwife just wants coffee at the bar. Everyone's going to be like, oh my gosh, I don't have coffee in my birth bag yet. It's going to be our fault. No. Okay. If anybody out there has ever been told this or has ever heard a story about this, please write to us, share. We must know where this comes from because never heard of it, not buying it. And to that woman, I would really love if she would go to her midwife and say, where did you hear that? Or where did you read that? And then send that to us. Cause I don't think other women are going to have heard of this. And I want to know where that midwife got it from. All right. That's it for our regular episode. It's time to move on to the extended version for our Patreon subscribers and our Apple subscribers. If this is the regular version you're listening to, it is time for quickies. Okay. Quickies. First one, what qualifies as a postpartum hemorrhage? Technically, what qualifies as a postpartum hemorrhage is the volume of blood loss, um, which is 500 milliliters or a thousand milliliters counts as a um, severe, severe postpartum hemorrhage. How do they measure it? (laughs) Eyeballing it. It's eyeballing it, isn't it? It is eyeballing it. There's no way to measure it. It's soaked into pads. It's soaked into blankets. It's soaked into, you know, it's mixed with water. There's no way to measure it. This is a reason why so many women are told they've hemorrhaged when they haven't. And research shows between one and 6% of women do. And the assumption is three. We talked more about that in our famous Pitocin episode. I mean, I think the only way that we can really qualify a postpartum hemorrhage is by looking at a mother's symptoms and blood work after the fact. Okay. Next. Next. Is it common for babies to prefer one breast over the other? Uh, Totally. Totally. Totally pretty much a guarantee that's going to happen because we have different flow in different breasts. We have a different number of little outlets in the nipple. So that affects the flow at the breast. One breast usually produces more or less than the other. Um, sometimes it has to do with, you know, babies have, they prefer their head to be to one side. There's all kinds of things, but yeah, a hundred percent, pretty much guaranteed. Next, how concerned should I be about a uterine rupture during the VBAC? No, not very concerned. They're not- Typically warnings letting you know that it might be uh, an increasing risk, but the risk of uterine rupture for VBAC moms is only a, a little tiny bit higher than uterine rupture risk for first-time moms. And first-time moms never hear about it, never worry about it, never envision it, and never think about it. And VBAC moms at every turn are led to fear it and envision it. So the safest thing you can do, since it's unavoidable if and when it does happen is not think about it and not envision it. And minimize the interventions that can increase the risks, such as heavy doses of Pitocin. The birth center wants to perform a hep C and drug test in the third trimester. Is this necessary? A drug test. This is one of those things. It's almost like the Rogam episode where the RH negative women say, well, my husband is RH negative, so it's not a concern. We don't need to get the shot. And when the provider is like, well, we don't know who the father is. Like you're fired. I'm not here to assure you. I'm here in the interest of my baby. So it's kind of the same thing. It's kind of it's just another. This is another example of public health medicine dominating individualized care. So from a public health perspective, do we want to screen every woman in labor for drugs and hepatitis C because we don't know where they've been and what they do? Fine, but when we look at individualized care, no. I mean, if a provider said to me, we need to do a drug test, I would say for whose sake, because I already know I'm, I haven't done drugs right. for whose sake, for your, I need to assure for her you, records 
in the interest of my baby safety, I need to assure you that I am not doing drugs. That that's backwards. You're here to support me. I'm not here to make you feel better about this. Now, if you don't know if you have hepatitis or an STI or something like that, fine, go for it. But the drug test, I can't believe that. I, I can't imagine one ever feeling willing to do that. All right, next. I need protein snack ideas to get enough protein in the day. What do you recommend? Chickpeas. <laughs> uh, snacks. Chickpeas, yeah. Okay, roasted chickpeas. I don't maybe? make fun of chickpeas as a snack. But oh, like, well, hummus. <laughs> Thank hummus. Hummus, yeah. Great. Um, um, I love um, almonds in the middle of dates. Good and late and good and late pregnancy too. Nut butters are great. Uh, deviled eggs, protein bars, if you can find a good one, if they exist. Chomps, if you're a what? meat eater, chomps. <laughs> Those little meat sticks. Is this another Midwestern thing? Where... No, beef jerky. <laughs> it's called a chomp. A chomp. It's not called a chomp. Meat sticks. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. I never heard. These of- are my go-to snacks. A chomp is the same thing or it's something else. <laughs> a chomp is a meat stick. I can just see all the moms who wants a chomp. It's a meat <laughs> stick, but is it beef jerky or is it just and like a leg of lamb? <laughs> it's not a leg of lamb. It's like a stick of beef or is turkey. It, that's dried, kind of dried. Yeah. Wow. If you like meat, it's good. Chomp. Okay. <laughs> um, can you wear underwear or bras while nursing? So the risk with underwires is that 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 pressure, extra pressure that the wire puts on your breast could restrict uh, flow and potentially lead to plug ducts. So yes, you can wear an underwire if you feel more comfortable that way, but you don't want to wear it all the time. If you're prone to plug ducts, I would not wear it. If it creates any type of discomfort, I would not wear it. Um, but you know, if you're going out, it depends on where you are in your nursing journey too. When we're many, many months out, we can pretty much do anything. When we're in those very early weeks, we have to be a little bit more careful. So in the beginning, no underwires later. Yes. Next. The, what is the best time for a non-pumper to pump if I want to make a small freezer stash? The best time to pump if you are just making a small freezer stash is usually after your first morning breastfeed, whenever you're kind of like up and out of bed and feed the baby for the first time. So somewhere between like six and 9 a.m., feed the baby, pump for a few minutes after. As you guys probably know, I recommend only storing one to two ounces a day to not get into a a oversupply situation, but usually in the morning because we usually have more milk at that time. Should fundal heights continue to match the number of weeks pregnant through 40 weeks? Well, in theory, (laughs) that's the idea with fundal height, but that does not always happen. Um, A variation of, you know, three centimeters can be completely normal. And especially as the baby is moving down lower into the pelvis, uh, that can change. How much sun is too much sun for a six month old baby? I would say it's the same as pretty much for any child. I mean, it it has to do with how sensitive their skin is to the sun and if they're getting burned. I mean, if you have sunscreen on them, they can stay out longer. If you don't, they can't. Depends on how intense the sun is, where you are, what time of day it is. So many variables, but I think you just treat it like any person in the sun. So, you know, keep them covered, but let them get some sun. Uh, Why do you need to care about a baby's position in pregnancy and not just in labor? Uh, Well, one, we need to make sure that the baby's head down at the, uh, in pregnancy, because then that's pretty much the guarantee of how they're going to start labor. In late pregnancy. In late pregnancy. Yes. 
And then how they are in late pregnancy is often how they start labor. So that's why it matters. So if your baby is posterior in late pregnancy, they may start labor posteriorly. If they are breached, they're going to probably start labor breach. If they're asynclitic in late pregnancy, they're probably going to start labor in that asynclitic position. So they do start to, especially in first time moms, they do start to um, kind of get fixed into position in late pregnancy. And that's why it's important. Last one. What's your current favorite song on the radio? No, I was just complaining about music the other day. (laughs) I don't know if I I had to pick, if I had to some, probably a Taylor Swift song, probably she's so talented. Um, I'm normally listening to like Matchbox 20, Rob Thomas, you know, back stuff that was big in the nineties. That's still my favorite music. You know what mine's going to be. What? Country music. Should I play it? <gasps> Last night we let the liquor talk. I can't remember everything you said, but we said everything. it all. You told me that you wish I was somebody you never met. But baby, baby, something's telling me this ain't over yet. Okay, I play it like a <laughs> hundred times a day. And I've literally never heard it. I'll play it for you. I'm on my way to Westport. I know. I'm so excited. I can't wait to see you and have dinner. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for these great questions. As always, please support our good work on Patreon, where we do two live classes with you every single month. See what the fun is all about. Go to patreon.com slash down to birth show. Give it a try. Come hang out with us. It is such a good time, such a great way to get education and support and community And Trisha, I will see you soon. Have a good one, everyone. We'll see you next week. Let's go. Thanks for joining us at the Down to Birth Show. You can reach us at Down to Birth Show on Instagram or email us at contact at downtobirthshow.com. All of Cynthia's classes and Trisha's breastfeeding services are held live online, serving women and couples everywhere. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. Interestingly, in, 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 uh, and I, I, I don't know how we know this exactly, but it is also, it is also believed that most postpartum hemorrhages are the blood volume is actually underestimated. Well, wh- where'd that come from? I don't know. <laughs> that's just the, that's so the that, that could potentially be rhetoric saying, actually, actually, it's usually underestimated. I mean, we don't, we don't know if they, can. how do you, yeah, how do we know? We don't know. All right. Next. You know what? Is- you know what? You don't know what you don't know. <laughs>